Good morning. I thought we were awake. I'm speaking on the value of weakness today, and that was quite weak, let me just say. You set this sermon up well. Well, it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to be back. I missed being here last week. I had the privilege to be up in La Plata, La Plata Baptist, as they were able to install their first elders um, after moving through a lengthy process there. It's a joy to see a sister congregation uh, growing and thriving in, uh, in health and gospel faithfulness. And um, it's just so encouraging to see what the Lord's doing these days. And I am so glad as well to be back with you today. And I do want to invite you to turn to Judges, Judges chapter seven. Uh, there in the Old Testament, Judges chapter seven, we'll be looking at uh, the entire chapter today. Judges chapter seven. As you make your way there and as we prepare for uh, this message today, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Father, we ask for, ask for your grace. We ask for uh, your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see the truth today. And Father, would you change us and give us hearts that would be receptive to your word in a way that would change us for eternity. Thank you, Father, that you've revealed yourself in your word. Help us to listen, help us to, to hear, help us to be changed by your grace today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in case you didn't know it, we are in the midst of a presidential election. It is an election year and election years are often memorable for many different reasons and oftentimes nauseating at the same time. As you think about uh, just our election process and all that goes on, you know, it's, it's something to behold and I don't wanna get bogged down in that this morning, but uh, you know, when you, when you think of all of the rhetoric and all of the, the, the information that's just inundating us with, with so many things coming out of the news circuits and all the things that we see, whether it's debates or, or, or the, uh, the primaries and different states taking place. Uh, you know, when you think about just when a, when a person runs for the office of president, and it doesn't necessarily have to be president, but since that's fresh on our minds today, we can speak of that. It seems that, at least in this day and time, and maybe it's always been this case to some degree, that if you're running for an office, the office of president, that your main job is not necessarily to speak about your own policies and your own strengths as much as it is to point out the weaknesses and deficiencies of the other candidates. At least that's what we seemed uh, to be experiencing today, no matter who your guy is or who or your girl is running for president. It, it, it just seems like that their job is to not say, this is what I'm going to do, but rather this is how bad this other person is. This is how weak and, and unstable they truly are. So they go back and forth, exposing the weaknesses of those they're running against. Can you imagine, can you imagine a president or a, 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 a candidate running for president who actually spoke to their own weaknesses? I mean, can you imagine that? Just imagine for a minute, Adam Polk running for president. That will never happen. A great, great uncle of mine has already been president. So I got presidential blood in there, but uh, not near as smart uh, to do that. But can you imagine this ad? Adam Polk for president, unproven leader, lacks experience, 
unfamiliar with government agencies, unsure of a sound strategy. You might or might not see a tax increase. Elect me your next president because with my lack of experience and ignorance, I will lead this nation to be the greatest it's ever been. Yeah. Maybe this is the beginning of something. I don't think so. If, just imagine if a, if a candidate did that. I mean, they would be laughed out of the race, wouldn't they? It wouldn't even be considered seriously at all. After all, if you're going to pursue the most, what people say, the most powerful office in the world, you certainly cannot come across as a weak leader. And no one wants a weak leader, do they? Weakness has become a word and an identity that we have been convinced that we must avoid at all costs. I mean, no one wants to be considered weak. Whether you're running for the president of the United States or president of the student council, weakness is bad, strength is good. That's basically what we would affirm today in our culture. Weakness is bad, strength is good. But what if I told you that weakness is not always bad? What if I told you today that, in fact, weakness is not something we should avoid at all costs, but rather something that God most often uses to accomplish his purposes for his glory? Well, Judges chapter seven says just that. Let's read it together. Judges chapter seven, beginning in verse one. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down to the camp against the camp. 
Then he went down with Purah, his servant, the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. So the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and emptied jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the three hundred, excuse me. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon!" Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from the Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb on the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed in the wine press of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. As we think about weakness, Judges chapter seven teaches us that there is a certain value in being weak because the Lord can and does use weakness for his greater purposes. Weakness has a certain value when understood in light of God's sovereign purposes. So here in Judges, we, I want us to see three ways that weakness can serve us. What I mean by this, and you'll get, this is point two, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm not saying that we all need to be weak and just stay weak, right? But what I want you to understand is that the Lord often uses the weak to accomplish his purposes. And in the midst of that weakness, we also learn much about him and we're able to grow in the midst of that weakness. So three things that we learn about weakness and God's greater purposes today from Judges chapter seven. Number one, through weakness, we are humbled. 
God will use weakness to sort of keep us in check, if you will. Gideon, we see, was first introduced back in chapter six. I appreciate Scott uh, walking you through chapter six last Sunday. And there in chapter six, we know that the people of God were yet doing evil in the sight of the Lord, again. And they cry out to the Lord because the Midianites were now oppressing them and they were stealing all of their crops and every time they would grow something, the Midianites would come along and take it from them and they were, they were just, they were in a bad spot again because of their sin, again. And so they cry out to the Lord and the Lord raises up Gideon to come and be their judge, to be their uh, deliverer. So he's first introduced back in verse 11 of chapter six. As he was hiding, most agree, most believe, in a wine press from the Midianites. And so we begin in verse 15. This is what, as the Lord calls Gideon, this is what Gideon says to the Lord. Verse 15 of chapter six, and he said to him, please Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So, so this is what Gideon's doing. He's, he's doing that presidential ad. Hey, I'm not the guy. I'm, the, I'm, I'm from the weakest clan, and I'm from the weakest family. I'm, I'm just laying it out there, Lord. This is not a good idea. I'm not your guy. My clan is the weakness, and I am the least in my father's house. But you keep reading chapter six, I'm not gonna re-preach Scott's sermon. We know that Gideon receives confirmation from God. In fact, Gideon tests God there. Not something necessarily we should imitate, but we know that Gideon tests God. If this is really what you want me to do, do this, this, and this. And God did that, that, and that. And confirmed for Gideon that he's indeed the one he wanted. And so, by the time you get to end of chapter six, this weak Gideon from the, the weakest in his father's house, from the weakest clan in the area, is now poised to be used of the Lord to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And so we come from the end of chapter six to the beginning of chapter seven, and Gideon, after receiving confirmation from God that he is indeed the man, now finds himself as the leader of this vast army of some 32,000 soldiers. Imagine the surging confidence that Gideon probably had at this point. God has spoken to him. God has confirmed him multiple times. And now he has this army, some 32,000 soldiers that are all encamped near the Midianites ready for battle. Everything seems to be lining up pretty well for this victory that the Lord has promised, but the Lord speaks to Gideon here at the beginning of chapter seven and says, there's only one issue, Gideon. You have too many men. You have too many men. Now, we're already, as we read later on, we know that the Midianites, we don't know exactly how many, but they had a valley saturated with camels and soldiers ready for battle. And so whether or not Gideon thought, I'm gonna do you know, I've got 32,000 guys and, and that's going to be hard enough or whether or not he thought, hey, I've got 32,000, I think we can do this. But the Lord is now saying to him, listen, you have too many, too many. Now, why was that a, an issue? Why was that a problem? Well, verse two answers that and probably the key verse to this entire chapter, verse two. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand 
lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. There's the key. There's the key. The Lord does not want there to be any confusion as to who brings victory for Israel. Don't want there to be any confusion here. This is God's doing, not Israel's doing. This is God's deliverance, not Israel's deliverance. And so the Lord reduces the size of Gideon's army into stages. Stage one, Gideon was to provide a hand-raising opportunity of sorts to those who were afraid to go into battle. You can go to read Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God makes provision for these kinds of things in, in the Torah, in the law. And so, imagine Gideon standing before his army of 32,000 saying, listen, we're about to go into battle. If you're fearful, you can go home. I don't know what Gideon was thinking, but can you imagine 32,000, if you're afraid, go home, and 22,000 do it? <laughs> 22,000, two thirds of your army says, I'm afraid I'm going to the house. I don't know about you, but I think Gideon was probably starting to, okay, this is not good. So 10,000 soldiers, but the Lord says, Gideon, verse four, the people are still too many, still too many. And so stage two, of cutting the army down. Now God does this in a very strange manner. Tells Gideon to take his soldiers down, the 10,000 that remained to the water. Basically he was going to separate those who, in, in the method in which they drank the water. If they kneel down, those over here. If they lap the water like a dog would, those guys over here. And so when we read the text, we see that 9,700 knelt down while 300 lapped the water like a dog. Well, guess who Gideon gets for his army to go, to go against the Midianites? It's the 300 that lapped the water like a dog. And so Gideon has these 300 men who drank like dogs. That's comforting, isn't it? I mean, just imagine, these are probably these wild looking guys, water just dripping off of their beards, you know, and you know, I don't know, but this is now a 99% reduction from 32,000 to 300. The Lord is going to take and use against the Midianites. Again, when the Midianites would be defeated, the Lord wanted there to be no confusion as to who accomplished the victory and who would receive the glory. I can imagine at this point, Gideon's confidence in himself and in his army is all but gone. And he's afraid. And this was quite intentional. Tim Keller says that human nature is such that if there is the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own work, we will. It's true. We are prone to self-glory. We are prone to be overconfident in ourselves. We love to make much of ourselves and take credit for everything we can. 
One of the things that we learn from this story is that we, we often have a tendency, maybe we don't always do this, but we certainly have the tendency to rob God of praise. God does something, we take credit for it. There's that tendency there. If we're not careful, we, we, need, to, we need to see with proper perspective what's going on in our lives and the lives of our church and the lives of, of those we know and love. If we're not careful when good things happen and we're involved, we can often rob God of his praise. We often set ourselves up as alternate saviors thinking we've got this. But the fact remains is that we make lousy saviors. And only God is the one to be praised. So what you see here in the example of Gideon, and I think that all of us need to hear as God's people, is that we regularly need to be weaned from self-confidence. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be confident in your skills and abilities, but you need to keep that in check. We need to be weaned from self-confidence that leads to self-glory that robs God of praise. God's pattern throughout the Bible is that he uses the unlikely, the unexpected, and the weak in order to accomplish his purposes so that no boasting will take place in ourselves but only in him. Look at several passages, I'll give you two. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one, we read from Paul's epistle, his letter to the Corinthians there in chapter one, beginning in verse 26. This is the church of Corinth. Paul writes, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what? What is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing to things that are. So that, here's the reason God chooses the, the unwise and the weak. So that, verse 29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's your reason that God chooses to use weak, insufficient people, weak people for his glory. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, gives a personal testimony of such. So he's instructing the Corinthians in chapter one, sort of exhorting them. God chooses the weak and the despised in the world to bring about his great purposes so that you won't boast in yourself, but rather you'll boast in him. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul actually gives a personal testimony of how God did that in his own life. Many of you are familiar with uh, Paul's thorn in the side, right? 
It's not something we say about other people and they're a thorn in my side. This has actually happened to Paul. He had a thorn in his side and we don't know exactly what the thorn is. There's all kinds of discussion and debate about what that was. But the point is, is that Paul was hindered in some way. He was not at full capacity. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse seven, Paul says this about his own experience. He says, so to keep me from being too elated by the surprising greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I am content, he says, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, I just wonder how many of us view our weaknesses like that? How many of us can say, I am content with weakness, with hardships, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Instead, Too often, we view our weaknesses as a hindrance or an excuse for action. We think somehow that our weakness is a hindrance to the kingdom of God, but friends, what the testimony of the Bible is saying is that God is in the business of taking weak, broken, frail people to do amazingly glorious things so that he is forever praised. This is good news for all of us in this room. This is, so, this is so helpful. I mean, you just read the Bible. People like Moses and David and Paul, we, we lift them up on this pedestal and they were fragile, broken, weak sinners. God uses weakness to keep us humble. Number two, through weakness, we are strengthened. In Hebrews chapter 11, there in the great faith hall of fame, we read someone's name there that may ring a bell. Listen to Hebrews chapter 32, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel, and the prophets. Look at verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Look at the next sentence or phrase in the sentence. Were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. These were made strong, it says, out of weakness. Friends, one of the things that we need to understand is that when we find ourselves in moments of weakness and moments of struggle and moments of, of 
confusion and chaos and not knowing exactly what's going on is that we do not need to view our weakness as something of a hindrance and something that we need to hide and protect and and be overwhelmed by, but rather we need to understand that it's in those moments of weakness that God actually uses that to strengthen us. In verse nine, back in Judges chapter seven, after his army of some 32,000 has been cut down to a tiny 300, Gideon finds himself now on the eve of battle. And soldiers will often tell you that the night before a big invasion or battle that the tensions and nerves run high. Even when you may think you have the advantage, it can still be nerve wracking. And so in verse nine, we see there is Gideon Verse 10, there is Gideon afraid. The Lord instructs Gideon here at this point to go down into the Midianite camp before the invasion under the cover of darkness because he's going to teach him something. See later on there in the passage, verse 11, you shall hear what they say and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down. I mean, after all, he's down to 300 men and the Midianites cover the valley floor like locusts in abundance, their camels without number and as the sand on the seashore. 300 men, too many to count. Oftentimes in our lives, we encounter struggles and problems because Certain things, even good things, have become too important to us. And when they're taken from us, they're removed from us, we find ourselves angry, discouraged, and even fearful. Because what happens in those moments of exposure, when certain things that we put too much confidence in, too much trust in, when those are removed from us, it it, it reveals certain idols in our lives. A great way, by the way, to identify idols in your lives is is just think of how you respond when something, something is removed from you. You fill in the blank. When something that you value and you love and you cherish and you've put so much confidence in and so much hope in, when that is removed from you, How do you respond? So Gideon and his servant make their way down into the Midianite camp under the cover of darkness and all that he has feared is confirmed. These Midianites are everywhere. So as he goes into the camp, you can imagine his fear is intensifying. But you get to verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. So Gideon and his servant, you set the scene up. They're coming down into the camp and all of a sudden they're getting really close to one of the tents and they can hear a conversation taking place in one of the tents. And it's one of the Midianites telling one of his Midianite comrades about a dream that he had. Gideon's listening. And this dream 
goes like this, behold, I dreamed a dream, verse 13, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, well, this is what this dream means. He immediately, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all, the, and all his camp. This was a Midianite speaking. This was not an Israelite speaking. This was a Midianite speaking about this dream that they're about to be destroyed. And all of a sudden, Gideon's perspective on everything changes. Right here in the midst of this moment of weakness, moment of fear, moment of struggle, Right here in the midst of, of that, that, that most intense fear that Gideon has, God in his kindness reassures Gideon of victory. He knows Gideon is shaken and afraid. He knows that he's wavering and his heart is in his throat. But, but notice, God does not come down harsh on Gideon. He doesn't come down harsh on Gideon, but he kindly reassures him of the victory. This reassurance is part of the means which God uses to strengthen him. This is, this is glorious. I mean, just think about that. If you have a deep friendship, for example, you have a deep friendship with someone, and in the midst of their time of sorrow or struggle or fear, whatever they're going through, as a good friend, what you will do is you will come alongside of them and you will encourage them by reassuring them that you're there for them, won't you? If you don't do that, you're not a good friend. But you come alongside and you, you, you just speak reassurance into them that you're there, that you're there. You may not have all the answers. And don't be foolish and try to say things into their lives that you don't know about. But you're there, and you're, they're there to reassure them of your love and your care for them, reminding them of all of that. Strengthens them. Or, I mean, if you truly love someone, you will often reassure them, reassure them of your love, won't you? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine a wife asking her husband or a husband asking his wife, whichever way you wanna go, honey, do you really love me? And the husband responds, well, I told you that on our wedding day, why should I have to remind you? That would not go over too well. A wise and loving husband will often express and demonstrate love for his bride by reassuring her in many ways of his love and devotion to her. This is exactly what God is doing here. He's reassuring Gideon. He's reinforcing Gideon's life that I am for you, Gideon. I am with you. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. You need to remember what I have said. And through this dream, God uses to bring strength back to Gideon's own soul. Friends, one of the ways God grows us in the midst of our weaknesses is by reassuring us of his commitment to us. We need continual rem re reminding. We need to be reminded daily of his promises and of his truth. 
It doesn't take much to be overwhelmed by our circumstances, even to the point where we've forgotten God's promise. Think about Gideon. Chapter six, the, the sign of the fleece. Gideon put God to the test, and God responded, confirming multiple times that I have promised you are the guy, and this victory is, is certain. Next chapter, God takes away his army, and now he's struggling, he's afraid. Doesn't take, doesn't take long to lose that sense of confidence because of our own weakness and because of our own sin and our own struggles. But God was growing Gideon here by helping him find his safety and significance in him, not in his circumstances. God was saying to Gideon in the midst of his weakness, I want you, Gideon, to trust me. I want you to trust me, not your army. I don't want you to trust yourself. I don't want you to believe in yourself more and more as if you can just sort of believe your way into obedience and faithfulness. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust what I have said. Notice an important fact here. Gideon goes down into the camp with his servant. He hears the dream. I love verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He didn't break out in a praise band kind of worship. That would have given him away. But right there in his heart, he just worshiped God. God, you're so good. You're amazing. Thank you. He worshiped. And then he goes back and he gets his 300 dog drinking men ready for battle. Notice an important fact here. Nothing in Gideon's circumstances has changed. Nothing. He still only has 300 men, they still have thousands. The circumstances haven't changed. God has not reassured him by saying, okay Gideon, I just wanted to check you out there a little bit and make sure you're with me. I'm sending you 100,000 soldiers. He doesn't do that. Circumstances have not changed one bit. The only thing that has changed, the only thing that has changed is Gideon's heart. We can learn so much from this. Too often we find ourselves in a moment of weakness and struggle, struggle demanding to God, oftentimes, demanding that our circumstances have to change. And we get that if only attitude. If only things were different, God. If only I had better friends. If only I had a spouse that would listen. If only I had kids that would listen to everything I said and did everything that I told them. If I only had a different job. If I only had better leaders. If I only had better this. If I only had this or that. If my circumstances were different, Lord, things would be better. Friends, oftentimes it's not the circumstance that needs change nearly as much as your own heart. So often what is needed in our lives, especially in those moments of weakness, is to be reminded of God's sufficiency. He's sufficient. He alone. 
And this is something we need to be reminded of every day. Every day. Our hearts are so tricky. And we are rarely in a place where we are fully trusting in God's provision and his promises. So, Gideon responds in worship, and then in verse 16, he responds in obedience. Note the confidence that Gideon expresses after he worships. Verse 16, and he, excuse me, in verse 15, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. Notice the confidence. Notice, notice the grammatical feature here. Past tense, has given. The battle hasn't taken place yet. And Gideon's speaking in past tense as if it's already happened because he's that confident that God is about to bring victory. Perspective changes everything. What in the circumstances that gave him that confidence? That's for sure. It was his heart as he encountered God in the midst of those circumstances that gave him this surge of worship and confidence in God. Friends, how many times, how many times has God called you to do something or to go somewhere where you, you just knew in your own heart that you're too weak to do it? Lord, I can't handle this. I'm just too weak. I'm unable, unable to do this. I, I can't fulfill the, what, the, the demands or the, the, the things to which you're calling me to. How many times have, has God called you to do something, to say something, to be somebody that you just simply think, I just can't. I just can't. How many times have you found yourself in a difficult position, not knowing what to do? So what do you do in those moments? Do you just simply retreat into your weakness? Do you retreat into inaction? Or do you turn your eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and say, Lord, I don't understand and I can't do this, but you are sovereign and you are good and you are faithful and I will worship you and I will trust you and I will obey you. Sometimes the Lord's trying to teach us in those weak moments, strengthening us. Friends, do you know that weakness is actually a good training ground for our souls? Because it forces us to see things as they truly are. You aren't sufficient in yourself. I am not sufficient in myself. We need God every single breath we breathe. Number three, through weakness, we find deliverance. Through weakness, we find deliverance. If I were to tell you, if I were to tell most people that the road to true victory is ultimately found through weakness, again, most would laugh. But yet that's what the story of Gideon teaches us. The reason this is true is because our weakness pushes us to see beyond ourselves and our circumstances to the one who can and does deliver. 
According to verses 19 through 25, you read the rest of this passage, the Midianites are defeated just as God had promised and there's two heads to count for it. It's kind of gross, but that's what happens. Gideon and his 300 men simply, even when you read this text, all they do is they just sort of stand in three companies of 100 men and they smash jars and blow trumpets. Not quite the military strategy that you would be thinking. That's what they do. Smash their jars, they blow trumpets. And verse 22 tells us that the Lord, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. It's clear from the results that the Lord is the active warrior that fights for his people in this passage. Not just in this passage. It is true, it is true all the way from the beginning to the end. God and God alone defeated the Midianites for the deliverance of his people and for the glory of his name, not for the glory of the name of Israel. One scholar said this, what we are seeing is not the product of a self-belief and determination to succeed. Gideon is not a self-made man, but a testimony to God's perseverance with someone who knew himself to be inadequate, who doubted again and again that God could or would do what he had promised to do through him, but whose recognition at last of the greatness and goodness of God released all his potential and allowed him to blossom into the leader God intended him to be. You know, we often will find ourselves with our backs to the wall, the odds overwhelming, our weaknesses exposed for what they are. And friend, the last thing that you need to do at that moment is to look deep inside of yourself and just believe in yourself. We need to truly see God for who he is. And we need to see God for what he has done, for what he is doing, and for what he will do. God is faithful and we need to believe what he has said. Just like he did in Gideon's life, God has gone before us and has promised us victory. And this victory, friends, is not one that is self-made. It's not a self-made victory. It is a victory that God has accomplished for those who could never accomplish it for themselves. This is the story of grace. It's the story of our own salvation that God has accomplished what we could never accomplish. He has done what we desperately needed, but we were inadequate to do for ourselves. Because of sin, we are all in a battle that we are sure to fail unless God helps us. We can't save ourselves because of some inherent goodness or ability that we have. Rather, God's salvation comes to those who are only aware that they can't save themselves and they need one outside of themselves to bring deliverance. It's only when we recognize our weakness and inability that God's love and his grace and his power become sweet to us and we cry out in faith to him. That is the message of the gospel. We are sinners, we are unable to, to bring ourselves salvation. We can't do it. We can't assure ourselves of victory. In fact, the only thing we can assure ourselves of is failure and destruction. 
But when we look to Christ, when we look to Christ and what he has accomplished for us through his perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross, there is forgiveness, there is hope, and he has guaranteed it because he was raised from the dead. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. But the Bible says clearly in Romans chapter five, verse six, for while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for people just like you. He died for people just like you. If you would simply just look to him and cry out in faith and trust him, his life, death, and resurrection has secured everything you need to be reconciled to God forever. Trust him, friend. Trust him, cry out to him and believe in him and be saved. And if you're here today as a believer and you struggle in your weaknesses, let me just remind you what what we're told in Hebrews chapter four. Speaking about Jesus, it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Maybe you're here today and you would admit that you've long been overconfident in yourself. Don't look to yourself, look to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've been paralyzed by your weaknesses. Do not be paralyzed, but look outside of yourself to the one who has guaranteed and assured us all victory. By his life, death, and resurrection, he has guaranteed it. Look to him and look to no other. Let's pray. Oh God, we so thank you. Lord, I'm thankful for passages like Judges chapter seven where we were reminded of the value of weakness. There's certain value in it because it reminds us of how much we need you. It keeps us humble. Lord, you use weakness to strengthen us and you use it to bring deliverance. Reminds us, Lord, that you are the ultimate deliverer. You are the one who alone can save. So God, would you, would you help us to respond today in a way that is, that is faithful to the promises you've given us in Christ? Lord, help us not to wallow in our weaknesses any longer, but to see them for what they are. Father, if we need to cry out in faith to be saved, God, help us do that. Lord, we need to just cry out for help. Help us do that as well. Lord, just help us to see our own hearts for where they are and for what they are. And Lord, help us to respond today to you. Father, you are good. You are faithful. You are strong. Remind us of that. Not just now, but Lord, even as we go into this week. 
Lord, help us to respond today in a way that is faithful to the calling to which you're calling us. Remind us, Lord, that all we have is Christ and that our hope is in him and in him alone. We pray this in Christ's name.